Welcome back to Mind the Future. Today we're going to be talking all about the future of gaming and I've got just the guests for it. Joining me today is none other than Victor Lucas, the creator and host of The Electric Playground, a show that he started all the way back in 1995 and which ran on TV for over 25 seasons, reaching millions of viewers. In fact, it became the world's longest-running program focusing on gaming and geek-related news, reviews, and commentary. These days, the flagship show, EP Daily, continues to live on YouTube, delivering daily news and previews, banning geek culture, and covering topics such as games, toys, comics, and gadgets, while also delivering on-location footage of events, red carpets, behind-the-scenes interviews, and much more. Its spin-off, Reviews on the Run, can also be found online and delivers consumer-focused reviews, with a dose of raw honesty. To find out more, visit epn.tv or the YouTube channel at youtube.com slash epntv. You can also find Victor on Twitter at Victor underscore Lucas. Welcome to the podcast. And I have my first question for you is... Sure. What draws people towards playing video games? What role do video games play in our society? Uh, you know, it's, it's emotions, you know, believe it or not. I think that there is a, there's a technical aspect to games and uh, there's um, an artistic aspect to video games and certainly great graphics are a, 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 an instant pull and an instant attraction for a lot of people. In fact, uh, you know, arcade games were all sort of crafted with this idea of having an attract mode where they would show off their flashy graphics and people would walk past the arcade machines and they would see them and they would get pulled in uh, because they were curious. It, you know, honestly, when video games first erupted, it was almost like um, they were playable cartoons in a lot of ways, you know. So it was a very interesting um, uh, dynamic to begin with. But then what people recognized, and I recognized early on in my career, um, is that it wasn't just a, uh, a sense of, wow, this is cool. This is interesting. It's like a cool toy that I get to play with and I get to uh, bat around a ball and pong or blast at space invaders or, you know, eat a bunch of dots and, and get chased by ghosts and Pac-Man. It was the emotions that well up inside you while you're playing them. And it's very analogous to playing sports or, you know, being on stage in a, a play or uh, public speaking. I mean, there's, there's an anxiety and there's an excitement. There is adrenaline that courses through you. And it's all tied to our emotional connection. And what developers and game designers kind of really kind of recognized over time is that they could turn the dials and, and, you know, flip levers and, and try all kinds of different things to um, tap buttons within us that engage those emotions and certainly addict us. But I think the most fulfilling and successful games, the ones that we continue to talk about really, um, they, they play with our emotions. And so, you know, we, we play the games even when we're not in front of a machine. And that's, that's you know, a very profound thing that happened with video games is uh, development matured and things got better. So I, I would say that, it, you know, a lot of facets go into the success of games, but central to um, us being drawn to them is the emotional, uh, you know, connections that we have with them. I have to tell you, uh, on the topic of still thinking about them when they're, when I'm not playing, Angry Birds, man, I could just see the, um, the birds and I would think about how to like throw them even when I was not at my computer, which is when I quit that game immediately because I realized. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there is also a lot of guilt associated with video games. And I think there is, uh, uh, there is an obsession, obsessive quality that, that can happen with games for sure. Uh, and that's probably why I turned my obsession into a career. Um, but I, I, I also feel like, um, 
uh, once you understand that and you can kind of uh, find balance with it, you can look at video games like any other form of entertainment. And I was just thinking about that today. Like, I love movies. I, I started as an actor and, and uh, it, it, it professionally as, uh, as a creative person. Um, and I was completely blown away by Star Wars and, and uh, you know, TV shows like Magnum P.I. I grew up in the 80s. And I just loved all of this this fantasy stuff that was being crafted for me, Terminator and Aliens and, and uh, Indiana Jones, of course. Um, but I, I, even though I love movies and I've loved a lot of TV shows and I love comic books, I really live for games, you know, like games really fire up all of those things in me, you know, because games bring a lot of the learnings that have come from movies and TV shows and radio dramas and, and uh, dance and, and cinematography. Like all of these art forms are, are um, you know, interwoven and uh, adapted. And then you are a part of the art too, because as you're playing it, you're kind of crafting your, your own stories and, and you become kind of the, the central star, but you're also the movie director in a way as, as you're playing through your experiences. Um, but I think one of the most successful games to kind of, you, you know, think of, get us thinking about playing a game while we're not playing it is probably Tetris. I think everybody has closed their eyes and seen the shapes falling yeah. <laughs> and been freaked out by that. But I mean, I, I think that's a, um, uh, that's an example of excellent design right there. And you know, what would you say is the biggest development in gaming technology? What, how has gaming evolved over your lifetime of, of being addicted slash professionally addicted? <laughs> uh, I, I think the biggest development was uh, bringing arcade experiences in, into the living room. You know, I think um, I, I was watching games mature and grow from a uh, very simple sort of bar type uh, you know, amusements or, or pinball pool hall type uh, amusements um, that were captivating and fun and, and they would consume your quarters, but then see a lot of that work get replicated and then eventually surpassed by home consoles so that we could all, uh, you know, by a relatively inexpensive device that can play stuff that is so much better than what a lot of us grew up with in the arcades um, was incredibly, you know, mind blowing, especially for somebody that, you, you know, I used to, I started on the Atari 2600, you know, I had Pong and stuff even before that, but the Atari 2600 was a uh, really one of the first, um, uh, cartridge-based home console systems where you could pop in a cartridge and you have a different experience. But most of those games were pretty terrible. And, you know, you would spend the, the, the cost for one of those Atari 2600 cartridges was still around $50 back in the 80s, in the early 80s. So it was a very expensive endeavor, partly because the video game companies could um, sort of create this message that everything was being crafted by magicians and no one could do this on their own. And, and we've, we've figured out this technology and so it's going to cost you. Uh, and it did. And you'd take the cartridge home and sometimes it would be the box of a thing that you'd been playing in the arcade and you pop, pop it into your Atari 2600 and it was absolute garbage. <laughs> it didn't look anything like what you had just played in the arcade. And then, uh, you know, technology improved and, and, and stuff just started to get much, much better at home. And uh, suddenly the arcade became less of a pull. But I still also love the idea of the collective um, experience in an arcade as well. And then there are lots of companies that have stayed making cool arcade games. But I think if I had to point singularly at, um, you know, the most important ingredient in the maturation of games and, and the, uh, the success of games as a, as a cultural uh, means of expression. I think it's that the home consoles really with the first Nintendo entertainment system uh, and its competitors from Sega and NEC and uh, then eventually Sony with the PlayStation and Microsoft with the Xbox, they really drilled down into experiences that, that pulled from all forms of storytelling and, and uh, state of the art uh, real-time visuals. And, uh, and then, of course, they implemented a lot of online technology, which allowed us to connect with people all over the world and, and, uh, and share these experiences in multitudes of, of ways. But I think the main thing was uh, 
we got home experiences at a fairly reasonable cost that uh, transported us to other planets and other worlds and other realms. And um, the escapism was profound and they just got better and better and better. And of course the, you know, the, the roots of the game, the arcade game, the idea of what a, you know, a lot of people still have where you plunk in a quarter into a video game and you get six minutes of game time. That just seems so far removed from playing something like, uh, you know, the last of us part two, which is, arguably one of the most uh you know compelling stories i've survived because it's so excruciating and and palpable because you're you know playing characters that you really care about and and uh you know and that's just one example there's there's tons of incredible experiences like that out there i want to touch on something that you mentioned in terms of um being able to play with other people so collaborative gaming and we have games like pokemon go and which actually finally got people out of their houses and maybe talking to strangers rock band dance dance revolution minecraft so all of these games seem to focus more on bringing people together rather than solo gaming where that stereotype of you know somebody emerging from the room after you know a month of yes yes do you want to touch a little bit about that idea of playing with others as opposed to just against others or against a computer? Well, uh, you, all, all of it is, f- uh, you know, valuable and fulfilling and fun. And I think, it, you know, if one were to be playing video games today, my advice would be to try a little bit of all of it. Um, I don't think any one aspect of it is particularly satisfying or, um, as fulfilling as it could be. I don't think that if you're only playing multiplayer Fortnite, for example, or only playing Rock Band, or only playing single-player solitary experiences, you're, you're really getting the full breadth of what this medium can offer. And that's the beautiful thing about video games, is that they aren't, a, they aren't the same experience every time. You know, if you allow that, you can have a lot of the same experience. You can say, well, I only like multiplayer shooters. I only like sports games or I I only like puzzle games. But games can, you know, they're they're constantly redefining themselves. So um, there is definitely an era where uh, there was no online play and there were multiplayer experiences. And Nintendo was a big proponent of that. There was a lot of couch co-op is what it's called, where people would play games like GoldenEye um, or Wave Race. Uh, you know, even back uh, Super Mario Brothers games and stuff would allow for two people to play together. And it's really fun to share that experience or a well-made experience like Rock Band is an excellent example. The, the act of pulling four people together to build a rock band uh, is so enjoyable. Um, and so, yeah, I think that there is tremendous uh, reward in that shared experience uh, and, and tremendous value. Uh, but I also think it's, it's really cool to go off and dive into, it's almost like you're reading a book alone when you play a solo player experience that, that is completely captivating and engrossing. And, you know, and one of the things about video games that the video game industry itself is kind of uh, uh, guilty of is pitting camps against each other within its own, you know, massive cultural space. You know, it's, it starts with consoles pitting one console against another, like the Nintendo Sega war, uh, you know, back even before that it was Atari and television and uh, now it's Sony, Microsoft. So it starts with that, but then there's the multiplayer only people that just say, why would you ever play a single player game? There's people that love Call of Duty, which is a f- massive video game franchise. It's, it's about kind of uh, synthesizing and simulating in an arcadey accessible way, uh, you know, the, sort of the battlefield experience and the war experience. Um, it's, it's like an extrapolation of playing guns, uh, you know, when when uh, John Wayne movies were popular, it's like taking that to a uh, in an interactive sense. But there's a lot of people that buy that franchise, buy that game, which comes out almost every year, and they only play one part of it. They only play the single player part of it, and they think the people that only play the uh, that that play the multiplayer part are kind of silly because they're missing out on the fun of the single player campaign. 
And then there's people that never even look at the single player campaign and they think that's a waste of time and they only play the multiplayer stuff and they get very hyper competitive. Uh, and and I, I find it all so um, reductive for any, uh, anybody on the outside to kind of look at games and try to pigeonhole them as one thing because I can, I can assure you, anybody that's watching this, there are video games made for you that you will love. They come in all shapes and sizes, in all flavors, and um, they are extraordinarily well-made and super fun and um, gratifying, you know, as long as you don't let them become your only thing in life. Um, but uh, I, I also feel like people within the community are... are can also get lost in being angry that other people like something, you know, and it's just so silly. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's highly charged. And part of that stems from the roots of the business and it's, it's desire to be competitive, you know, cause there is definitely another element in, in video games, the esports kind of attitude of being hyper competitive and being uh, better than other people at stuff. And so that, that exists on the uh, game stage when people are playing each other, but then it can also sort of uh, grow out of that. And, then, and so consequently, we have a lot of people that feel intimidated or overwhelmed and, and they just don't want to pick up a controller. Um, and, and that's wrong too. I feel like games are for everyone and you don't have to pretend, be good at them. Uh, you know, and part of my career has been to just shine a light on the creativity and, and the, the crazy ambitions of video games and to show that it's humans that make these things and they make them for humans. And, uh, you know, people don't need to be nervous or afraid or, or judge the entirety of this massive multi-billion dollar, you know, almost 50 year old industry based on one title or two titles or one, you know, Twitter fight, you know, (laughs) there's a lot going on here. Well, um, it seems like over, I don't know, the last 10 years, the biggest development in gaming technology has been things like facial recognition, voice recognition, recognition, gesture control, graphics, displays, VR, AR, and all those kinds of things, clouding, cloud gaming. But, you know, storytelling seems to have been, in some ways, maybe even the bigger evolution. Um, Right. You talk a little bit about where you think storytelling in games is going where are we heading there well i mean if you if you think about it we're we're dealing with um i mean the the most the the high the highest paid storytellers and the most influential storytellers arguably are in hollywood right now making you know blockbuster movies like in marvel's avengers or star wars most of those creators have grown up with video games and they are massive fans and something that i recognized you know 15 years ago in my travels with electric playground is that i would visit a a video game studio or i'd visit a film effects studio or i would talk to a movie director in their office or you know actors even on red carpets they're all the same nerd you know they're all into the same stuff they have the same action figures and posters and stuff on their back on their walls and and there's a, a real mutual admiration and respect. It's not the 70s or the 80s where you'd have movie studio people that came up with stu- the studio line and only thought of their movies as, as sort of the, the zenith of uh, uh, you know, cultural output out there. And any other thing associated with the film was kind of this, 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 this sort of the same thing. So a video game would be like a beach towel or a lunchbox or something. It's not like that anymore. You know, J.J. Abrams is making video games. Um, video games are being made out of... Tom Holland is is uh, going to be Nathan Drake. You know, he's coming off of Spider-Man. He's going to be Nathan Drake in the Uncharted film. The Last of Us Part Two, uh, I, one of the biggest games of 2020. There's a Last of Us HBO show that's coming. And um, Neil Druckmann, who's the creative director on uh, the Last of Us game series, is going to be heavily involved in the production of the television show. And that's what's happening right now. There's a threading that's going on. There's an appreciation that's going on. Part of it is business. Part of it is, um, you know, there's a lot of superheroes that have been mined. There's a lot of people that have tried to do Star Wars at that level and haven't quite hit that. And so a lot of movie studio folks um, and, and accountants are thinking, well, video games are very popular. Let's make TV shows and movies based on video games. So part of it is definitely that. But I think more importantly than that is that 
people that love creativity um, understand how creative video games can be. And video games have just taken the, uh, their cues from movie making and storytelling and, and learnings of uh, you know, where to place cameras and how to transition from one scene to another and how to get the best performance from actors and how to gr- create the best soundscapes and uh, you know, how to deal with surround sound enveloping a player so that when they hear something over here, they know to turn over there. All of that lesson, all of those lessons are from film, you know, and there's a lot of moments in games that are uh, either complete nods or uh, ripoffs, however you want to frame it, of like s- super successful scenes in movies, and they're interpolated and, and, and uh, positioned in games. But now we're seeing um, so much crossing over the other way, and, and a perfect example is uh, Epic... Uh, Epic Games, the makers of Fortnite, they also do, they provide the Unreal Engine technology for game developers out there. But now, and I'm sure you know this, the um, their real-time rendering engines are allowing uh, filmmakers like the, the John Favreau and the team behind The Mandalorian to create virtual sets in real time on massive uh, LED and LCD screens that are are creating backgrounds that move with and track with camera movements. And it's game engine technology. So, uh, you know, as much of, as games have borrowed from movies and have learned, uh, you know, a lot of fantastic skills for storytelling, now the reverse is starting to happen. People are recognizing the value in, uh, and the importance of uh, virtual reality applications for camera placement inside of virtual spaces, which will either are, are either created on the fly in real time or will be rendered later on. Uh, so a lot of shots are being positioned that way. And it's the same, it's one-to-one technology when you're working in a game. Uh, but now this this screen technology, Mandalorian's currently using it. It's going to be adopted everywhere because it's efficient. Uh, you, can, you can create an outdoor environment um, where the light off the screens is reflected on helmets and on players' eye or characters' eyeballs in movies. Uh, and it's it's incredibly fascinating. And and honestly, the uh, I mean, we're getting so photo real with game engine technology that it's only a matter of time where it's going to be indistinguishable uh, on flat screens and then eventually in holographic devices that, that make you feel like you're transported into a world where you're not going to know if the character that you're talking to is a human actor or uh, a virtual replication of a human actor. And I'm sure there are going to be characters rendered and modeled and holographically projected into stages that, you know, movies are being made using game technology where an actor will be talking to some kind of, you know, CG rendered creation and not know if there's a a person inside of that suit. Well, there is is, uh, an actress recently, a virtual kind of character that was signed by a major agency to be a film star, which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So in terms of virtual reality and augmented reality, um, which I see those are definitely big things in gaming. Where do you think um, that's heading in terms of like using other senses like smell and taste and touch? I know there's been some attempts at at like more... um, physically embedding uh, technologies um, and yeah. that's gaming. I think that's, uh, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's kind of holy grail type technology. And I, you know, I've seen, I've gone to a, a ton of game developer conferences over the years and I've seen various companies come forward with, uh, uh, you know, first it was force feedback and, and uh, then eventually it was, uh, uh, you know, multi-layered feedback. So you'd put on vests and things and you could feel different. Like if somebody was shooting you or punching you, you could feel different parts of your body. Um, but that that drive towards uh, full immersion and tactility and, and a, a sense of uh, uh, being displaced into the virtual world, um, not just through your, your eyes and your ears, is something that you know video game companies and, and technology companies are working on like crazy right now. I think th- these types of technologies almost revert us back to the arcade kind of idea. The arcade is, uh, in concept, is the perfect testing ground for expensive technologies. It's the perfect beta test to see 
how uh, a player or a consumer of this type of content would uh, uh, benefit from it or have some, uh, you know, negative reactions or negative feedback that would help to kind of further evolve it. Once we start to see like these location-based centers, and there have been some pretty cool ones. One of them is called The Void, um, where they actually have like a warehouse that's set up and, and you can put on the virtual headset and walk around um, knowing that you've got one-to-one walls and things that aren't the set that you're seeing inside of your headpiece, inside of your headset. Um, but they, the physicality is there. So they'll, they'll have, you know, some, some like a wood table that has been put there, but then you might be on a space station and it will be in your headset, a gleaming white glass thing or, you know, some kind of sci-fi thing. So physically they've crafted the, the bones of what you're seeing in your headset. So, you know, the next step obviously is to inject blasts of air and, uh, you know, some kind of concussive things that happen in different parts of your body and then um, smells. And then you probably sit down at a table and, and you know, pick up a, a virtual spoon and, and, you know, you're eating some, I don't know, blue meat or something. I don't know. We're and, in the and matrix, in your- basically, at that yeah, point, I, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, I mean, the holy grail, the thing that we all would love to see is some kind of uh, extrapolation of the X-Men's danger room or uh, the holodeck from Star Trek. And every game maker um, was inspired by those kinds of ideas. But, you know, because we can see them in our mind, we're moving towards that, you know? And I've been thinking a lot about this with, um, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Elon Musk and others have posited that we are living in a video game simulation. We're living in some kind of super... Um, advanced hypercomputer um, uh, kind of reality. And I, I don't. I'm not suggesting that we are, but the the act of suggesting that means we're moving towards that. You know, and it, it we may not be living in that, but I think we have a good chance of creating that. We might create life, at least virtually, in some kind of. You know, like we are, we already create cities with artificial intelligence that we get lost in, in games today, you know, or in the case of uh, Red Dead Redemption or Ghost of Tsushima, these open world environments where they feel pretty palpable and pretty realistic, you know, by the, even with our modern understandings of the limitations of um, the characters that, the non-player characters that we're encountering we're only 40 years into this, you know, if, if we, if we move forward another 10, 20, 30, a hundred years, the realities that we're going to be able to create in games are going to be indistinguishable from what we're walking around in. And um, that's frightening, but it's also exciting. And, and honestly, the idea of, of um, interstellar travel and projecting robots and, and, uh, uh, you know, figuring out because it's not going to be humans that we're going to send on the on the first trips out of our solar system. You know, it will be probes and robots and avatars. machines, but avatars. So the yeah, perfect, right? So imagine, you know, we've got some super advanced ocular and sensory devices that we can get into, but we've got an avatar on another planet, and we're for all intents and purposes traveling there through them. You know. And it's that kind of game thinking that's going to allow that. And that kind of familiarity with that language that is uh, um, going to open our minds to those kinds of possibilities. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, AI and machine learning as it applies to games. What are kind of the things you're seeing in terms of applications? And again, where do you think that's going to, you know, 10 years from now, where are we going to be with that? Uh, it, it's it, it's amazing. I think, you know, the companies are certainly thinking of, because uh, there's a lot of iteration that happens with development. There's a lot of like um, building a tree and then you got to build another tree. And then there's companies that come up, they're called, uh, you know, uh, what are they called? Middleware companies that come up with, you know, like rendering engines and, and, and whole technologies for creating a landscape where they'll, they'll create... Uh, um, sort of the bone structure and the animation strings um, so that, you know, non-player characters inside of a game world will all react properly if like a cannonball hits or something like that. Um, 
And, and so AI, I think, is going to be at first um, the first steps to kind of simplifying mass development and, uh, you know, populating game worlds with art and design pieces that uh, augment creative inspiration. But of course, you know, these intelligences will only grow exponentially. And what will be interesting and also a little terrifying when you, you think about the potential is, is to think of the, the eventual artificially generated through computer learning um, full-on experiences that, you know, like I think it's only a matter of time that, and honestly, one of my greatest fears, Catherine, is that we become a species that is um, computers making games for computers. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't like, I, I like the, the fact that Q, the computers allow us, uh, you know, there are tools for us to, to reach some really cool potentials, but I don't want it to be so artificial that, that the human experience, you know, the human creative impulse isn't a part of all of this, but I, you know, you can kind of predict that at some point in the future, someone is going to market and sell. This game was made entirely by artificial intelligence and good luck, you know, and you know, that sounds scary as hell, but, um, I, there's a lot of other things that AI is working on that, that are probably more terrifying than the video game stuff that we're going to be thinking about. Absolutely. Right now, it, it, it is a useful uh, tool set for, uh, you know, um, solving problems, you know, whether it's a resource issue or a, um, a, a game space issue. Like, perfect example is uh, when, do, when does Google Maps intersect with Grand Theft Auto? When, when can you just take the idea of, of zipping around the world map and then land in that city and then you're getting into a car virtually and you're driving around in a real thing and then you get out of the car and then you walk into any house that you see on the street and it's all fully rendered and modeled and then you get back into the car and you drive to an apartment building and you visit every apartment and they're all rendered differently. That's a great to, you know, training tool. What you're saying is it's a great training tool for somebody who might want to steal cars or rob apartments. Right? <laughs> you try it well, virtually first and then. <laughs> well, you, you know, those impulses and those instincts are, uh, you know, a latent part of humanity and always have been, you know, we, we have darkness in each of us, uh, you know, as we continually discover every day that we breathe air on this planet. But uh, uh, one of the beautiful things about the design of Grand Theft Auto and other games like that is that you can choose not to do that too. And what blows cri critics and, and game fanatics like myself away is the freeform nature of their design and the potential that that kind of creates for us as players. And the limitations have been that we can't walk into every building and we can't, um, we, we see a lot of repetition in, in design aesthetics, you know, um, what AI introduces is, uh, a lot of, uh, algorithmic disparity and, um, a surprise, you know, eventually we're not quite there yet, but we're, we're going to see some pretty cool, I, I, I think this is, it's about games becoming bigger and broader and more expensive and more challenging for just a human to make. And we're already at thousand person teams in video games. We're already, you know, at parity almost with the biggest movie studios out there. You know, when you're talking about uh, the, the blockbuster movie or a blockbuster game, budgets and manpower they're getting close, you know? Um, and I think that there will be some ceilings where, you know, it's just going to be very hard for even the most efficient and disciplined publishers to kind of wrap their minds around. How do you make this army, make this thing, you know, like I, that always blows me away, whether it's a giant movie or a giant game It's like, how did you get all of those people moving in that singular direction? You know? There's so much money um, that goes into, you know, developing new technologies in gaming. Mm -hmm. Anything happens in film. And of course, uh, film, as you mentioned, uses a lot of the technologies uh, that come from gaming. Can you yeah. think of other examples of where that technology that was initially developed for the gaming world is then used as application for other things? 
Well, uh, you know, the, the engine tech, well, first of all, like games are teaching humans a language. So uh, you can see the influence of games in every app that you click on, whether they're game related or not. Um, you can see them in the UI of every computer screen. Um, you can see them at banking ter terminals. You can see them uh, in television commercials. You can like this is a, uh, you know, there are generations of us now that have uh, a real affinity and a real recognition. It's not just nostalgia. It's, it's like, uh, it's a, it's a vibrant way to live, to think about uh, accomplishments in through the prism of uh, playing a game, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, that's, that's one of the ways that video games really succeed. They really kind of uh, like one of the biggest su successes of this year is animal crossing. And it's a game that really doesn't introduce anything that we can't do in the real world. Um, but it does it in such a clever and accessible way and, and it was so valuable during this stay at home period, this pandemic time to be able to escape to our little islands and build up our communities on these little islands and then visit other people's islands. Um, so, we're, you know, we're seeing the influence of games across almost every sector, but the technologies in games also allow like we're we're years away from a, like a real-time animation film festival, you know, whereas opposed to, you know, where that real-time quality of, of the animation, meaning that you can move the camera anywhere you want to as a participant in, a, in watching this animation, um, w that will look better than what Disney and Pixar are putting out right now. We're years away from something like that. And we're, we're years away from companies like Disney and Pixar uh, uh, utilizing that engine tech and that kind of design and, and technology in their work. I mean, the fact that Lucasfilm is doing that right now with The Mandalorian is going to ripple, just like everything that Lucasfilm has always done. It's going to ripple all the way across the industry. We're going to see that tech in superhero movies and other you know, sci-fi things and uh, all kinds of fantasy. And then eventually, like especially the, the visual effects industry, um, you don't even know when you're watching something with visual effects anymore because we've just become so um, it's, it's become so prevalent and accepted and important as part of, you know, creating that frame and game engine tech will be a part of that kind of thinking as well. Uh, it's already a huge part of, of the commercial industry you know, when you watch a lot of car commercials and stuff, those aren't cars, those are rendered, um, you know, video game models at super high resolution. And they are, they, <laughs> yeah, they're put onto, onto a road that might also be rendered. It's very easy for people to recreate vehicles mm -hmm. in CG. Uh, and it's going to become increasingly easier for filmmakers and, and visual storytellers to create real-time vehicles. And like reposition, like right now, there's a lot of rendering that happens after the fact and shots are very explicitly framed pretty soon the, those vehicles and those environments are going to be so photo real you can blow them up onto an 8k screen and you won't be able to tell the difference whether that tank or that plane or that car is really a physical thing or not and so much traffic stuff that you see right now so many collisions and accidents and you'll see cars and in, in uh, movies and tv shows just you know explode and crazy fireballs and stuff stuff that that would blow our minds if we used to watch the a-team back on tv back in the day and suddenly like that like cars are just thrown around like uh they're like hot wheels well that, they're all generated in a computer and so they might have one physical element of a, like one car hitting something, but then all of these other pieces are placed into the scene. Um, and uh, so we're going to see a lot more of that. And obviously we're going to see a lot more um, uh, really beautifully rendered CG characters that are going to look a lot more like the stuff that Marvel has been doing with the de-aging technology has been insane, right? Like, to see Michelle Pfeiffer and, and Michael Douglas pop up in an Ant-Man movie and you're like, holy crap, they look perfect. They look exactly like they used to look. Extrapolate a little less that. with the Nero. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, a little less with the Nero. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're focused on that. But we, we soon we won't be, you know? And soon, you know, we've had digital characters like Jeff Bridges in uh, Tron and, and uh, you know, Luke and Leia in the Star Wars movies, um, which 
have had varying degrees of success, but you're seeing the deep fake technology. You, you know, there's a lot of uh, AI assisted and real time assisted uh, uh, rendering that's happening and it's just going to get insane. And like, I, I think, you know, there, there's some interesting side by sides that we're going to be able to do between CG Yoda in the prequel Star Wars movies, puppet Yoda in the classic Star Wars movies, puppet Yoda being brought back for the more recent. And then what a, you know, a, a theoretical Yoda in a Star Wars film 10 years from now is going to be, you know, some amalgam of the puppetry and the, and, and I mean, we're seeing even with the baby Yoda, the tech that's in the baby Yoda. It was, uh, you know, a lot of it was a lot of times a a puppet in the traditional sense. But um, I don't know if you heard about any of uh, Werner Herzog's uh, interactions with the thing, but he was basically crying on set. You know, this filmmaker that has been making cool movies forever, he 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 was just like, this is the most beautiful creation ever, and and he he knew intrinsically that that was going to become this massive sensation out there and that it was the whole heart of the success of the show. And it's what people talked about everywhere. And it was the work that went into crafting that little character. But I, I think that we're going to have, uh, you know, holographically projected uh, real time puppets in working with actors shot on cameras, probably VR cameras of some kind. And then, you know, like post-processing and post-effects and all that stuff that we think of right now is still very two-dimensional. Like we, we take a scene that's shot this way and that way and this way. When we're talking about VR cinematography and cameras and using real-time engines and all that stuff, suddenly you're thinking, you're thinking 4D, like, like placements and lights and all of that stuff is all manipulable. And that's all game making, you know? And it's going gonna, it's gonna to get... It's going to get wild, especially as head-mounted display technologies get more advanced, and and uh, you know people are just pl flipping on a pair of glasses or contact lenses. Like, imagine if you popped on contact lenses, and it was the same sensation as uh, putting on a, a heads-up display, and so you could see the VR space mm -hmm. that you were interacting with. You know? Or the AR space, because... Or the, the AR space, yeah. I'm quite excited about that, actually. Also, from not even just from a gaming point of view, but if we have these contact lenses that are um, AR, and I'm walking out in the real world, and I'm going to get information about buildings that I see. Maybe I'll know who the architect is. or Totally. You know, all this data, I think, is, is quite fascinating and i think you know google glasses was an attempt that failed because there were glasses and they're clunky and but that kind of heads up display is a totally different situation yes. that once they figure out how to do that that's something that's going to make it a little bit more usable other yep. fakes kind of terrified me i have to say you were there, there's a lot of technology that's freaky you know and and uh, also our addiction to it you know like we are uh that's not new, though. I mean, I think when people first started printing books, I, I, I am sure people were like, stop reading. You're always reading. What are you doing? Get out there. <laughs> you know, go plow, that, go plow that field. Why are you always reading books? You know, and radio. I'm sure there are a lot of people just like, why are you always here listening to the radio? You know, um, but yeah, we, we as humans, we need to uh, constantly remind ourselves that we are organic and we need stimulation in many ways, not just but TV will off rot of a your screen. brain. TV will rot your brain, rock and roll, comic books, yeah. uh, movies. I mean, the, the thing that's weird about the 20, 20th and 21st centuries is that we've had it all so fast and so many transformations and so many, um, so much media just constantly shifting. You know, it's, it's, I don't think there are generations going back in time that have had to deal with this much transition. So, so technological transition so quickly. And so of course we've got generations of people just completely shocked and terrified and, you know, um, vilifying what's coming up because they don't understand it. Of course. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of a gaming games, rotten your brain, Actually, yeah. of all things, I did like a story for Playboy of, of all okay. locations, and it was about uh, how games can actually improve your brain. So sure, yeah. they improve things like, you know, your skills, reaction time, logical thinking, spatial planning. So is, are games the ultimate playground for our minds? 
I think there's something to be said for, uh, you know, staying sharp when you're, you're puzzle solving. I mean, you have to think of games, uh, you know, first they were, they were 2D puzzles that we had to solve and had to kind of navigate through. And when we got into that Z plane and started to think about, you know, 3D navigation, it's pretty profound. You know, it's a pretty big deal to manipulate a character or your avatar, if it's a first person experience through a three dimensional playground and survive, you know? And uh, I think that there's something to be said for humans being able to pick up a control device of whatever, whatever kind of manifestation and figure out how to, uh, you, you know, provide the correct inputs and the, and the, the right button presses to solve this, this puzzle box that a, dev- a developer has crafted. And uh, they've obviously gotten more advanced and more sophisticated and more complex and more challenging. And I think that that constant engagement with uh, that mental stimulation uh, is incredibly important. Um, and, and at the same time, the storytelling, as we've talked about, has gotten much deeper and, and uh, you know, um, uh, much more mature and much more multi-layered in a lot of titles. And that also energizes the mind to uh, think of things empathetically as well. And I think that there's a, you know, an emotional intelligence that sort of gets ignited by good quality content like that. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I'm a big believer that if you're uh, not engaged in the world, like you, there's great stories that will, energize your your emotions and your intelligence and your um uh your your tools to analyze and and discuss Uh, but i think there is also a lot of pablum there's a lot of entertainment out there that you just put it on and i mean when i was a kid this is kind of embarrassing but i used to love the love boat show you know and it wasn't because i was learning anything from it it just felt like i'd come home from school at at three o'clock and i'd turn on television and the love boat was in syndication and i would just thought i I thought it was just cool that all these celebrities from different things were on the show but i i you know there, there was not i was learning nothing from that show it was just pablum it was just this this comfort food and that exists in games games aren't perfect uh, but I think it exists a lot more in sedentary, passive, you know, just watching stuff. I mean, that's, I think that's the only way you can uh, uh, sort of justify the existence of things like Real Housewives of New York or whatever. You know, like I, I know that people love that kind of content, but I, I just feel like it's, it's just a lot of noise, you know, and there's a lot of noise out there. Um, but games do, once you, once you, are invested, they do ask you to lean in and solve them, you know, and constantly analyze. You're a part, a participant. You are part of that engagement. So, uh, yeah, of course, it's going to not only, you know, get you to think of things in 3D space and, and you know, work some of your physical manipulation and, and um, your puzzle solving skills, but I, I, I think because it's such a constantly um, evolving medium and it's like the rules are set for like a a couple of years and people follow a thing. And then you see a lot of games that look like that game, but then the table is wiped a lot, you know, and then suddenly a new way to think about video games erupts. You know, a great example is uh, uh, the legend of Zelda breath of the wild, which used a lot of interesting elements from previous, um, uh, games that might have borrowed from Zelda, but it was a very different Zelda game than every other Zelda game that had come before it. And it has become incredibly influential in the video game industry. And in, you know, in a great sense of the, the term, it wiped the table and said, this is what Zelda is now in 2017. And uh, that's, I mean, that's why I do what I do. I've been covering games for 25 years and I love it. I wake up every day. I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen today. I don't know what new, th- like Epic is being, is suing Apple and Google right now because right they, now. Uh, yeah, they uh, uh, won't let them have their terms on selling currency within Fortnite. And Fortnite has been removed off of Android and iOS. And it's a huge deal in the video game industry. But that that is the industry. Like every day it's like, what the, <laughs> what is happening? And how is this game a reality? And, 
oh my God, have you played this? It's awesome. There's a great trend too towards gamifying pretty much everything at this point from education yeah. for educational purposes, but also for things like meditation. I have a, a headset, uh, I think it's called Muse, and you can, uh, you know, it tells you if your mind is calm. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Wearing this headset. So it's, it's quite interesting in terms of these um, applications. Now I'm wondering from your vast experience with different kinds of games, uh, from a technological point of view, what are some of the most exciting things you've seen so far? Mm. We're, we're on a bit of a plateau, honestly, I feel. Like uh, we're talking about um, borrow, uh, grabbing stuff off of hard drives a little bit quicker. And so stuff is rendered quicker, and, and uh, um, which is going to be great. I mean, the fact that you're going to go into a, uh, a huge open world and, and you're not going to have to wait for loading and you're going to be able to traverse in a million different directions and, and it's all open to you is, is very exciting. But we're not at a, a sense of... Uh, uh, oh my God, we haven't seen this idea before. I think what's on the horizon is this um, uh, you, slimming down of the technology that we're going to need for um, artificial uh, displacement, you know, that virtual reality, uh, a, a augmented reality type of experience. I think with games, you, it's, it seems a little bit to, to make a little bit more sense to think of virtual reality because you, it's cool to think that space invaders or, or something is going to come into your peripheral vision in this reality and, and screw with your mind a little bit. But I think it's, it's more exciting to put yourself on another planet, you know, and deal with what that reality is going to be. Um, but I think some of the big stumbling blocks technologically are the fact that we've got these wires and cables that we can get, you know, tangled up in. And we've got uh, um, controllers that are really cool, but maybe not quite the same as wearing a pair of gloves that, you know, give you that same tactility. Um, but I think we're over a couple of really small hills and we're, we're there. I think once Apple finally releases their AR glasses and gives us a sense of projection um, uh, on something very light and very portable, that, that is just gonna, like all the stuff that Apple does, they sort of craft this consumer experience that people adopt and then other technology companies take from that and, and come up with their own um, variations of that. I think a virtual reality experience that's as small as a light pair of glasses um is that's going to be profound i think that's going to be like if people could play the 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 vr experience of like half-life alex which came out this year but they didn't have to wear a big bulky headset and have it plugged into a noisy pc um they would be blown away because it's it's amazing you know but Right now, you need to spend a couple thousand dollars at least and uh, clear everything out of your house and, you know, have, have the room to do it and, and uh, not get any motion sickness in VR. Or go to an a abandoned warehouse, you know. Yeah. And then that, now we're talking about serial killer games, which I do not condone. <laughs> Just yeah. If you could snap your fingers, this was my attempt at snapping my fingers. It was a little bit. Scary. Okay. If I okay. properly snapped my fingers and you yes. could have any piece of technology, um, what would you, what would it be? And how would you use it like to create your perfect gaming experience? Oh, wow. Um, <sighs> Well, I mean that's such a that's such a broad question because the tech that that really excites me is this idea of uh, um, exploring other worlds, you know. And games allow us to do that. But if if you gave me the the freedom to ask the genie for one wish, it would be to safely travel to uh, uh, other stars and other planets, you know, and to, and to see all of that. Games allow us to do that, you know. So I, I guess it would be. Uh, it would be, you know, light, feather light um, VR technology that allowed for lots of different types of game variation, but also the, the, the actual physical space to uh, get the most out of that experience, you know, 
to never think about bumping into anything, to just be completely transported. You know, I think that would be very exciting. That being said, though, I, you know, one of the, the great sins of the video game industry is to always be forward thinking and always be looking forward. And, and um, it has a great, unlike Hollywood, it has a, uh, it, it has a great history, the video game business does, of forgetting its history. And there is this constant, um, you know, got to buy the new console and it doesn't work with the old console. Got to buy all the new controllers. The new controllers are better than the old controllers. And so we have a lot of this, uh, you know, clutterware at this point. And uh, something that excites me currently, and I would like to see it extrapolated even further, is either a digital archive of the history of the business, because there's a lot of value in, in uh uh, looking back and and appreciating where we've come from, and a lot of those games are terrific, or um, more work done to archive the physical works that we're moving away from. Like I've got a collection of you know a massive collection of games, but we're slowly moving away from physical media across the board, and that in includes in video games as well. And so consequently, we have tons of discs and cartridges, you know, humans around the world uh, that. Um, we have to kind of preserve antiquated old systems for. And I just wish that uh, new technology was there to utilize old content um, in effective ways and to preserve it, you know, to protect it and preserve it in some way. Um, and so physical hardware like that would be amazing, but also uh, digital, uh, digital ar ar archival of that content would be great. You know? yeah, I love that, actually. That's a great thought. Um, so I have this question. It's my last question to you, and it's become sort of a bit of a signature question that I ask all my guests on the series. Since we did talk about it in the context of gaming, just yep. in terms of anything, what do you personally, Victor Lucas, look yep. forward to in the future, you know, 10 years from now? And it could be anything, technology or not. Um, uh, I, I, I look forward to, um, you know, we've, we've talked a lot today about the, uh, the potential of this technology to entertain us and, and our, uh, you know, efforts as a species to harness great power, um, to stimulate ourselves in some really fascinating ways. But we have a lot of things that we have to, we have to look after on this planet. And so what I hope is that with all of this machine learning and all of this um, uh, technological advancement and understanding is that we figure out some ways so that, uh, you know, certainly this planet is cared for and the environment is taken care of um, and that people can be healthy everywhere. Um, and, and honestly, I also feel like we as a species have the ability to, uh, um, you know, be a, a, a source of light and hopefulness on this planet. And if we play our cards right, maybe across other planets. And uh, that excites the hell out of me, you know. And my, my kid has said since she was a very young girl that she's wanted to be an astronaut. And I feel like a lot of people are going to get the chance to be astronauts in the not too distant future if we play our cards right and um and i i just hope that you know the this the outer space missions that inevitably will be occurring and be human powered aren't because people are racing away <laughs> from whatever we have done here you we're know? not going away we're going towards something yeah yeah i think uh we're an incredible species you know like we um we, we have some amazing gifts and, and uh, it, it's, it's in our entertainment and we can see it, you know, these, these, uh, these, these, these stories and these poems and these songs and these games that uh, lift us. And uh, it's incredible that we can communicate that stuff and be so moved by them. Right. And so in that there is this, I don't know, this profound potential and, uh, I, I, that's what I hope, you know, as much as I want to keep playing cool things and I, I've had the luxury of doing that forever. Um, I, I also hope that we are smart enough to, to take care of this planet and each other and, uh, and eventually share that. 
you know? That's really great. In some ways, it kind of strikes me that our um, imaginations are kind of in the same way, infinite in the same way that space is, because spaces yeah. don't know that there is a limit and yep. neither do our imaginations. And, and that is something that we find within the art and arts that we create, and including gaming. So yep. we are exploring space at home sometimes too. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, you know, and honestly, like when, when, when you, when you get into it all, like we've always used technology to convey stories always. Um, and it, it's, I think it's very representational of the, uh, um, the emotional value that we have as, as humans, you know, like that's, the, it, it's great that we can create things to progress us and to give us creature comforts and, and, uh, uh, wealth, but, um, I think it's equally important that we have like emotional or, or spiritual, uh, wealth in expressing, you know, these stories through something that we're all able to understand, you know, there's something so powerful in that, you know, like, and so singular, like we haven't encountered another species that, I mean, we don't know. Maybe the dolphins tell stories to each other, but it feels like we have this very gift, uh, you know, not just to be smart, but to be empathetic. So, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for being part of this. This is really fascinating, and I'm just so uh, curious to see where this all takes us into the future. Me too. <laughs> thank, thank you so, so much for having me, Catherine. Thank you.